We're going to be positive every day. You're the people being negative. You're in some of the fans. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. Kevin McHale's not walking through that door, and Robert Parrish is not walking through that door. And if you expect them to walk through the door, they're going to be gray and old. And all this negativity that's in this town sucks. And I've been around, and, and, and when Jim Rice was booed, I've been around with Yashramski booed, and it stinks. It makes the greatest town, greatest city in the world lousy. This is Entitled Town. Another big thank you to Rick and Al. Hello, friends. My name is Mike Irons. Welcome to the 15 Podcast Network and the Free Agency 2021 edition of Entitled Town. Uh, as we record, it has been 872 days since the conclusion of the 2018 World Series, and it's expected Greg Bedard will announce any day the results of his Boston Sports Journal investigation into his hiring of uh, alleged homophobe and racist Mike Loiko. Almost the coach does seem like a man of his word, and he's not full of shit at all. Anyway, we've got some tidbits also from everyone's favorite former Twitter the legendary Matt in Framingham, but that's that's what they call in the business evidently a tease, but we're bad at this, we admit it. Uh, Patrick Scartelli of the aforementioned 15net.com is here in the podcaster one position. Uh, Dan Staley and John Irons joining Scartelli and I in the ET rotation. Uh, spot starter Dave Brown is still unavailable. Free agency started with a bang, Scartelli, and it looks like the national and Boston media in particular were once again spot on in their analysis of how the Bill Belichick's Patriots would approach free agency. Oh, whoa, whoa. wait, what? It's just uh, a little surprising how, uh, how many people got things completely wrong with regard to how free agency started, uh, with, with one notable exception. It's old friend uh, Tom E. Curran. Back in, um, look at looking at this here. Back in January, talking to uh, WEI, said that uh, the Belichick was going to be extremely and uncharacteristically aggressive this off season. Well, good for him, but he's you know he's standing you know alone by himself with regard to this. Everyone else seemed to believe that it was going to be another another you know nibbling at the edges, getting. Mm -hmm two ponies instead of a horse kind of thing. And when he went out and just bought a, uh, you know, a whole bunch of thoroughbreds, people seem to be unsure whether to wind their watch or do something else. A, a thousand percent. Correct. We, we went after Tom last week on the podcast and uh, when he's right, he's right. We're going to, we're going to call bullshit when bullshit needs to be called. And we're going to give credit when credit is due on occasion. Um, let's go to Dan, Dan, Gary Tangway desperately wants you to discuss him in his appearance on the Greg Hill show today. So let's talk more about Bill Belichick being a destroyer of idiot media narratives. The media is speculating on the motivation, current aside, behind the spending spree. And their collective conclusion seems to be that this is all because of Brady's success in Tampa and that Bill is vengeful. He's bitter and he's jealous of Brady. Putting aside for the moment that I'd argue that the media is projecting their collective feelings towards Belichick in this matter, uh, what are your thoughts on this Bill's motivation spin? Well, I'd say many a bad narrative has been written trying to guess at Bill Belichick's motivation. 
um, back with the Spygate. They said that he ignored the memo because of his arrogance back when he uh, did the fourth and two decision, which, you know, by the way, has become sort of a pretty routine occurrence. They said that was a product of hubris. And now that he's spending big in free agency, they say it must be because of Tom Brady, as if seven and nine wasn't motivation enough. Uh, Karen Gregian flat out said that in an article the other day. She said, you can thank Tom Brady for this. She also suggested that uh, Belichick's pursuit of Don Shula, his win record played a part. And finally, she said that he must, Belichick must be on notice because of one seven, nine season. Made me wonder if uh, Shula was ever put on notice for going 30 and 33 between 1986 and 89. With, with the best, arguably the best quarterback in the league at that time. Yeah. Uh, so Bedard said he's going all in that said that by going all in uh, Belichick's admitting that he dropped the ball the previous three plus seasons which is kind of an astounding statement considering that they won the Super Bowl three years ago Uh, it's it's go ahead it's Bedard caused me to to hit the button there so I mean the narratives that were spun and, and and Bill Bill again we're very close friends went out and debunked them well, he foreshadowed the move back in September. He told, the press, he told the press back then that it was a reset after going all out in previous years. And th- their response to that was, well, what kind of, they didn't go all out. That's bullshit. And then he told Charlie Weiss in October that it was mm-hmm. a year to, quote, adjust our cap from the spending we've had in accumulation in prior years, unquote. And they used 2020 to eat up all the dead cap from Brady and others. And he even moved millions of uh, Stefan Gilmore's sal- salary from this year to last in anticipation. We, sh- we really should have seen this coming. A Bel- you're 100% right about Belichick foreshadowing what he, he came out and said as much with Charlie Weiss and with others, by the way. And there's some good points that you made there that I, I'm writing down that I want to get back to later as if our agenda isn't long enough. I'm going to throw this one to John. John, leading up to the uh, legal tampering period of free agency, there was very little reporting going on regarding the Patriots. As we just said, it was all narratives. It was all really baseless speculation on what the Patriots would do. And the media bobos claiming to have sources in the building. (coughs) Bedard, if they're not reporting anything accurately, offering insight, and they can't analyze correctly, Regarding the media, the Boston media specifically, but not exclusively, to quote, paraphrase the movie Office Space, with regards to media, what is it you're doing here? Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned Curran kind of having it having it right in some respects back in January when he said he thought the team would be and Bill Belichick would be aggressive. Yeah, I think we talked about that. And, and collectively, between the four of us, we have a grand total of zero sources in the building. But we projected that this would be the the path they went down. None of this is really surprising to any of us or anybody who follows the team in a good faith sort of way. If you pay attention, right. Right. By by that, I would exclude most of the media, right? Who isn't following the team in a good faith sort of way. So a couple of things jump out at me that that have really kind of popped this week. Number one is, like you said, the, the lack of sources. And by the way, I don't even know if I would be all that critical of the media. I'd rather give praise to Bill Belichick and the organization. You know, they're running an organization where stuff isn't leaking. That's a very hard thing to do. So nobody in the media was tapping guys like Matt Juden from the Ravens. Nobody was talking about the receivers that the Patriots ultimately landed on. People were throwing stuff up against the wall, kind of like we do, right? And and what do we think the team's going to do? They have as much insight as we do. 
And Correct. for that, I will, I will say, good job, Bill Belichick, keeping this stuff in the organization, keeping this stuff under wraps, executing the plan that you've obviously been working on for weeks. Uh, you know, when, when the media was out there talking about how you don't have a plan because mm-hmm. you're not doing press conferences and you're not out there, you know, making our jobs easier so that we can, we can do the kind of reporting we do. You're keeping everything in-house and you're going about the business of executing. And, and the, the corollary to that, what bothers me, and it really popped this week as well, is you think back on the media and how they've talked about what the Patriots are going to do, how wrong they were. There's a sense of sabotage here, right? There's a sense of like, we know that the media is gleeful when they have an opportunity to tear down Belichick. We know that they're gunning for him to be replaced ultimately so they can get a coach that makes their lives easier and makes their jobs easier. Right. We know they want that, but, but they're out there kind of pro- projecting a sort of, well, you know, Bill should do these things. Well, if he did these things that they're asking him to do, the team would be weaker. So we're fans. We want the team to be successful. We want him to go back to Super Bowls and win Super Bowls. Yet the media is pushing this kind of this perverted reality that would sabotage the success of the team. And that's mm-hmm. something that really bothers me. You know, it, it's just, I don't like this idea that Bill Belichick should ever be accountable to people like whether it's Tom Curran, Greg Bedard, Ben Volan, he should never be accountable to them. He should do exactly what he's done the last few weeks into this week, keep them completely in the dark, build his strategy, execute his strategy, and put a team on the field that all the fans are excited about watching. A thousand percent. And I, I want to give credit to Bill Belichick. That's something that clearly we don't do enough on this podcast. Uh, John and I, you, you and I talk a lot about what lessons we can take from watching the Patriots, specifically the Patriots, Belichick's management style and how we can, you know, what can we take from that um, in our own professional lives? And I, I tell you, I admire that nothing got leaked. There wasn't anything. Um, I want to have my team pulling all pulling in the same direction that way and be on board with the plan. I think, I think that's brilliant. And in light of Curran's piece of, again, which he's done a mea culpa on since writing about not having a press conference being malfeasance of his job and attacking him. It just looks even more ludicrous in light of the, the well executed, the, the plan they put out and how well it was executed. Um, in just, I mean, the 48 hours after the legal tampering period, it was, it was, I overused the phrase masterclass, but uh, that's what it was. Scarzi, agree? Oh, I, I 100% agree. And the fact that there's people out there, you know, giving them, you know, C grades on some sort of, uh, some sort of free agency, uh, you know, tracker, it's just, uh, it's just ludicrous. There's nothing more ludicrous than grades being handed out before the ink, the ink, the contracts have been inked, uh, seeing the fit, that sort of thing. Um, we made a decision um, right immediately following the Newton sign, and we had a little entitled town roundtable, and we made a, a, a command decision as a group to not do an emergency podcast after the Cam Newton signing or even the flurry on the, uh, the start of free agency. And I think that was a responsible decision that was further endorsed by Andy Hart and Ryan Hannibal doing one 35 minutes after the Newton signing was announced and Bedard and uh, John's friend Nick Cattles holding court and doing the same thing. Um, There were zero contract details 
and I, again, going back to your sabotage and bad faith, you call it sabotage, John. I, I referred to it previously as operating in bad faith. These, the, the, the four horsemen of the misinformation apocalypse go on their, their podcast. There are dozens of listeners just like us. They're, they're no different than us. Don't, don't let them tell you any differently. They're going over contract details when they're new one. They're spewing disinformation when they had no information. And sadly, this is just, it, this is not the outlier. This is the norm when it comes to coverage around the Patriots. And it turns out Cam Newton didn't make, didn't sign a contract for $14 million. His cap hit, as it stands today, is scheduled to be $3.5 million if they release him prior to the season. He has to make the team. He has incentives that make him, I believe it's just a hair under $5 million per the great Miguel Benzon, which is below market for a backup quarterback. Nobody in this round table here, we, we don't like Cam. I think that's being kind. Dan, I think we did the right thing in not doing a, a knee-jerk reaction podcast irresponsibly. Oh, absolutely. Their, their first sort of, a, of business is to try to come up with the, what's the most outrageous take that we can, we can get from this and go with that. And so you, you take the knee-jerk reaction. We knew, we knew that there had to be more to the story. We knew that, those, that the numbers that the agents put out are, are, aren't the real numbers. You know, there's, there's likely to be earned incentives. There's not likely to be earned incentives. So when the, something like that comes out, the, the prudent uh, way to go is to wait. Agreed. John, um, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, did anybody really think, again, in a good faith sort of way, did anybody really think that what was initially reported was was the deal? Well, hold like Bedard everybody... all last year was telling us that they were they were going to funnel him more money because he yeah. was so criminally underpaid <laughs> for a quarterback he wanted benched. Yeah, I mean, okay, so so again, you didn't answer my question. Did anybody in good faith really think? <laughs> Fair point. That the the deal that you know was initially reported was the actual deal. Like everybody knew. That let let this thing kind of let the details come out. We'll see what it's all about. I get the fact that I get the fact this is a competitive beat, right? Boston's a competitive town. It's a great sports town. You know, there's there's multiple papers, multiple outlets. It's a competitive beat for every sport, right? And then you you put the you know the competitiveness of the beat on top of social media and the the urge to be first, right? The urge to be first always supersedes the urge to be right. Right. I mean, that's just the world we live in. It's been that way for for more than a decade now, at least. So that the urge to be first, you know, means you're 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 putting being first ahead of being right. And that means you're wrong a lot. You know, and then, of course, you know, the accountability industrial complex when they're wrong a lot. Well, it's kind of hard to be the accountability industrial context, you know, the, the accountability industrial complex when you're wrong all the time. Right. So that's that's kind of one of the bitter ironies in which we live with these guys. They are wrong all the time. They just throw stuff out there. And yet they want Bill Belichick and the Patriots to be held accountable and do do rando press conferences so they can make their jobs easier. I mean, that's that's kind of the, you know, a summary of the, the world we live in. I want to go back, though, to to an earlier point that you guys made. I mean, this this is such a master class in taking advantage of a market inefficiency. And, and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, this is the, the Michael Lewis Moneyball Patriots. Bill Belichick, and, and I'll get to one other kind of, you know, myth that we're going to bust here. Bill Belichick, I, I firmly believe, saw ahead 
that the this sort of market inefficiency was looming with COVID in the season mm-hmm. and the revenues coming down. It's going to have an impact on the cap. He planned accordingly. You know, well before Tom Brady was even seven and five with a struggling Buccaneers team, the the die was cast on this reality, right? So the the market inefficiency exists. Bill Belichick and the Patriots were poised to take advantage of it. That's exactly what they did. So this ridiculous notion that all of this is being driven by like one-upping Tom Brady, this this was all put in place when when Greg Bedard was saying he didn't think the Buccaneers were going to make a run in the playoffs, right? I mean, this was this has been set in place. He has mapped it out. He's been able to execute it. Everybody else is letting go of talent because they're up against the cap. The Patriots have room to, 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 to kind of add a lot of talent, and they're doing it. I mean, this, this isn't a surprise. This isn't driven by Tom Brady. All of, all of the, the pieces that had to be in place had to be in place well before the Buccaneers were making their playoff run, way before that. I th- I'll throw a flag that about the uh, Belichick red challenge flag on the market being competitive because I'm not sure I agree with that point, but I want to uh, throw it over to Scarts here. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on on John's point and uh, th- this particular point? Oh, this is another example of just the row of chairs we've got going on here. I agree. Uh, I ag- aggressively agree with this. Uh, I believe that the new TV deal was announced just uh, moments ago. It's, it's not even a right. TV deal. It's, you know, it's got streaming. It's got, it's where, you know, we're living in the future now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's so a it's, multimedia deal in the way that you're a multimedia superstar, blogging superstar, podcasting superstar. It's the numbers are massive. And again, I don't want to report the numbers because I, I saw the, the, the sensationalistic 10 billion being thrown around and, I'm not sure whether it was Cam's total compensation if he's uh, MVP of the Super Bowl and also lands a, 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 a spacecraft on Mars. But the contracts to, to a nearly to a man, I'm not for the larger names, for the Judons and the Nelson Aguilors, now the contracts are, are structured exactly as you would think. They can fit everybody in comfortably this year, still add pieces. And then to Scarzi's point, when the TV deal kicks in, and then the salary cap, theor- salary cap, he tried to say, theoretically ex- explodes. They're going to have more and more room. Um, let's move on to the, the next point. And I guess this is kind of trampolining off of the previous point uh, that John started to make. With, I'm never sure whether the media as a whole is willfully ignorant or just obtuse. Um, the Patriots, I think they're completely missing to John's point that the Patriots had a plan last year to clear cap space after Brady made his decision to go to camp to Tampa. Then immediately COVID happens and there's a shutdown. And I think it was probably, it was evident throughout the year that fans weren't going to be in the stands and everything associated with that costs go down and the caps, the cap went down from the, the high one nineties to, I think it's one eighty one or one eighty two and a half. Um, and the, and the media is just flabbergasted that, that the Patriots planned ahead to John's point, Michael Lewis exploiting market inefficiencies. Uh, is it, is it willful being willfully obtuse? Are they just, uh, I, I, I can't believe it's just, it's not obvious to everyone. It's, it's maybe it's the biases, John, the inherent biases against Belichick. Yeah, I, I I do think it's the it's the toxicity of the biases against Belichick. I mean, they have all dug in so deep 
even Curran, you know, who is just grinding away the same sort of axes that the other guys are, are grinding on this. I mean, he has, he is, I mean, he's just run such a wonderful program for the last 20 years of not only the, the, the winning, but like the culture that they've yep. built. And, and, you know, another, another myth we should, we should, uh, you know, kind of put to bed permanently here is guys wanting to come back. I mean, we're all old enough to remember when nobody wanted to play with the Patriots because they brought back Matt Patricia. Right. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, you know, you've got Trent Brown coming back and talking about ex- how excited he is. You got Van Noy coming back, talking about how excited he is. I mean, the way guys talk about when they're, you know, Chung's announcement, you know, just the, the, the fact that, you know, of course, another guy who, who was here left came back. Right. It's, you know, it's just that this is obviously such a winning culture. And unfortunately fans are being fed this media driven narrative that is, Alice, it's, I said, I've said this before in a past podcast, Alice in Wonderland, you know, yeah. it's this crazy, awful fantasy, you know, that, that's totally conflicting with the reality of what it is to play for this team and this, be a part of this organization. I will say one other thing, though, that, that I think is a human nature thing, and that is I think the media in this town takes being wrong personally, and Bill Belichick has yes. made them wrong for some of them for 20 years. I mean, Ron Borges, you know, has been wrong for more than 20 years now on this team and every single bit of success Bill Belichick has year over year over year is kind of reinforcing how wrong Ron Borges has been for more than 20 years and counting. And I think he, he just takes it personally. I think that's a, that's a bit of a human, you know, kind of characteristic. These guys, they make Mm -hmm. predictions. They are wrong. They've been calling the end of the dynasty for, for, you know, a decade plus, you know, Borges is, is never going to live down, you know, the, the Seymour draft evaluation. It gets thrown in his face all the time. So as long as Bill Belichick's running this operation, they are, it is, it is stuffed in their face how wrong they've been over and over and over again. And I just think they take it personal. I just, I just, I do think it's that toxicity, Mike. I always thought that Borges should have just said regarding that Seymour quote about him being too tall to play tackle. I th- always thought he should have said that he just took it from Mike Sando. Greg Bedard, what do you think <laughs> about what do you think about that, Greg Bedard? I had no clue. All right, uh, the new narrative that's come out after Kraft's spending spree, and this you want to talk about you just pivoting to the, immediately pivoting to the negative. Why aren't they paying their own players, Dan? <laughs> Well, I haven't heard that one yet. Well, I haven't, that is, that must've come out just in the, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Scarzi, uh, the Tooney goes to the chiefs. Uh, never mind the, the fact that the, the, I thought what the Belichick and the Patriots did in the offensive line, there was cl- again, clearly a, a plan in place, but the shifting narratives, they spent the, he's cheap for years. He won't, he won't spend the money. It's a corollary of Eddie Andelman's old argument about Harry Sinden, where he pockets the difference for everything he keeps under uh, the whatever set amount is. Um, he goes out, he brings in what appear to be on the surface, really terrific players, young, in the prime of their career, for the most part, durable. And these guys are talented and have proven durable enough. This is a point Mike Lombardi made on the podcast this morning, where these guys are getting their second contract. And they're likely to get a third contract. So I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, Mr. Scartelli, that uh, once the narrative was busted that they're cheap and they won't pay players, that when they pay players, well, why aren't they paying their own players? The goalposts moved. 
I haven't seen the goalpost move like this since that windy game way back when there. Carrying but them it, down Route 1. <laughs> exactly. And uh, if only, you know, they'd get their just desserts like those goalpost movers got. You know, <laughs> not, you know, I'm, you know. For any of for anyone whose family members there. were electrocuted, you know, I, I hope they're doing better now. But uh, the the idea that like you like you were saying, it's all about the second contracts nowadays. As these guys, the the, uh, the free agents that they've signed, they've you know they've got a proven track record behind them, and because of the particulars of the situation right now, they're going to get paid maybe a little more than they a uh, little more than. You know, market value would seem to indicate but that's uh just what's going to happen this year with regard to the the cap where it is and where things are going to be going and uh, the players that we've got the uh you know the veterans the veteran patriot players if they uh if they perform well they will get their uh they will get their second contract or be you know as the uh, term of art goes, granted their release and allowed to uh, allowed to you know go play in the big free agency fields. No, agreed. And sometimes it's it's just that simple. If they pan out, great. If they don't, you know, we're on the Cincinnati in in the player standpoint. With the opt outs coming back, high tower chief among well, them. But, 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 well, the opt outs are not all coming back. That's another one of the uh, they're walking that one back with the well, no, well, you know. One of them are, you know, Chung retired and uh, Cannon got traded. So they're not all coming back. So I was right is what that comes down to. <laughs> I was right at the time, caller. That's yes. that's the time-tested uh, time fallback. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I'm really not a true podcaster one is what it comes down to here. <laughs> so we're going to have to – so please, I'll, I'll stop interrupting and let you continue on. Well, Al's paying you like one. Your, your cap hit is huge. Just thank God your agent negotiated all that guaranteed dough up front. Um, Hightower, Scarty, thank you for correcting me. Hightower is the most high profile of those coming back. Um, huge cap savings with Cannon going to Houston, doing his buddy Nick a solid along with Ryan Izzo. But with Hightower, Van Noy, Matthew Judon, and then these are the, the pieces that I love that he signed. They were really terrible in the interior last year. They got Henry Anderson, a big body from the Jets, and uh, Godshaw from uh, – Devon Godshaw. I'm not going to call him the player. I'll actually say his name. He played with the Dolphins. And Chung retiring and doing Bill, a, Bill again, we're, we're really close, doing Bill a solid and not announcing his retirement so they can go out and sign Jalen Mills away from the Eagles. Mills played everywhere on the back, on the back side of the Philadelphia defense last year, the back seven. And I, I mentioned to you guys before we started recording, I was like, oh, he seems like a, he's in the Patrick Chung role. He is in the Patrick Chung role. It's almost like Bill... His players, he's in touch with his players. He's actively a, a, seems to be effective communicating with the people on his roster uh, in that vein and then builds his team. So I, I, I don't, there's no downside to what's happened, um, at least in the initial stages of free agency. And they still have room to add pieces and do kind of the fill the middle level of the roster and that sort of thing. The defense is going to look a lot better with, with Josh Uche and, and Winovich and Anthony Jennings kind of in instead of having to, to carry the bulk of the load and playing lighter safeties in, up in the box 
uh, I'm not a, an X's and O guy, but I have to think that there's going to be a market improvement on the defense. And, and they weren't great last year, but they certainly weren't terrible. Oh, sure. uh, if next, I might, uh, go if ahead, I might come in there, it's, uh, this was noted by uh, old friend uh, Pat67 over at the uh, BSMW Slack board that uh, Chung had a cryptic tweet that he sent out uh, a few That's days right. ago about some uh, big announcement which turned out to be a joke about he, you know, switched his car insurance or some such thing. But uh, the theory was he was going to announce his retirement then. And someone, you know, got the recall uh, you know, notice sent out that no, 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 don't do this now. I'll Wait buy that. until after. That seems, that's, that seems plausible. And, it certainly uh, does. It, 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 it fits with, with what you just said about how they've got a plan. They're keeping things keeping things in-house they're not going to you know not going to let things leak out so agreed it's and it's it's very clear that the reporters that cover the patriots and the national media it's like they're not getting anything from people inside the building despite what pathological liars might tell you and they're trying to, to put the chess pieces or the, the puzzle pieces together by talking to the the organizations that leak like the Iraqi Navy, like down at uh, in Hempstead and Jets headquarters and down in Florida with, with Flores and, and, and other teams. I mean, it's, it's pretty apparent if you read the, the Twitter feeds of Ian Rappaport and the completely and utterly useless Albert Breer, what organizations they're getting information from. So I want to take a turn away from kind of just hammering this and hammering the media. And I actually want to, I want to give kudos and we made the point a little bit earlier that um, being first is what's being first, but not necessarily being correct is what's important in the media today. Details be damned. And that was the BJBSJ model at once upon a time was like first again, but we didn't have to be right. We were just first kind of lampooning everything in media. Uh, I want to give, this is just an appreciation, a small segment with an appreciation of Miguel Benzon the erstwhile Pat's cap. Miguel doesn't try to get it first. He wants to get it right. Miguel is respectful. He's thorough. He found, he found the coverage of the team, the salary cap in particular, so just dismal that he went and dedicated himself to it. And he has a website that even media, not just locally, but nationally referred to when it comes to... Uh, all that has to do with finances regarding the Patriots because he is everything local media isn't. He's thorough. He's detail-oriented. You know, that I, I vouch for Miguel and, and what he's done, and Lord knows I've enjoyed reading what he's tweeted, and I, I was thankful that he left, got out under Bedard's thumb. But, uh, John, thoughts on Miguel, his integrity, and just the, 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 the fine quality of the work he does? Yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful resource for all Pats fans. And like you said, even the, on a national level, national reporters obviously tap into his stuff. Um, he asks for nothing, it seems like, you know, except maybe the occasional contribution. I, Hartford I Habitat, a, donate yeah. to the Hartford Habitat if you enjoyed yeah. Miguel's work. So there you go. So I, I think that's wonderful. He's, he's just one of those like kind of citizen media types, you know, very common early, in the early blog days you know, they, they saw market inefficiencies and, um, and wanted to improve the coverage. And some of those folks have gone on to, you know, to, to work in major league front offices. You know, a lot of that baseball prospectus stuff um, kind of had that, that kind of sort of origin. 
uh, which is pretty cool. Right. And, you know, he's, uh, he's just kind of cut from that cloth. It's a, it obviously was a hobby. It's become a passion and uh, folks respect that, you know, because he's, he's genuine and he's straightforward and he's, he's just kind of about the work. He's not about, um, you know, he's not about getting sweet tickets and, and, you know, all the splendor he can consume. <laughs> that's, oh, that's definitely. Scapsy is a, he's a, he's a straight shooter and he doesn't uh, suffer fools gladly. No, he doesn't. And again, it's talking about an inefficiency in the market. And John, I know John will vouch for me on this one. Um, again, market inefficiency. Um, someone, they wouldn't call him friends, but he was a neighbor of ours growing up. Kevin O'Connor, who, um, one thing California Bill has gotten right. Kevin O'Connor grew up in our neighborhood. Uh, he was a lot younger than us. Kevin O'Connor was a blogger for the Celtics and really hustled and, and has made his name. And now he does pot. He does, he writes for the NBA for the ringer. He does podcast. Um, uh, someone who doesn't try to gaslight and does his job earnestly. And, and for my money, does it well, again, I'm biased, but I don't find him out there trying to gaslight or, or, or pull the wool over everybody, anybody's eyes. Uh, Dan uh, thoughts on uh, Miguel at Pat's cap. I like that. Um, right in his mission statement he i mean he, he says that he doesn't speculate you know he right the, the numbers i'm, I'm not going to make any guesses at this this he he puts a lot of work and effort into it and he gets the numbers right which is why you know the proof is in the pudding everybody's coming back to him he's getting the national acclaim from that as well as local agree and it's earned it's it's deserved and uh miguel thanks um uh thank you and we're we're not all hammering all the time but i am going to to, to bring out the hammer here briefly. I don't want to, John put it positive that we might be punching down on Greg Bedard because uh, he's a down on his luck guy with four mortgages and a failing website that he had to sell for pennies on the dollar to us. Another small media entity in new England. Um, Garoppolo was, has been dying on the hill that Jimmy Garoppolo was plan a uh, Cam Newton was resigned. And now he's, uh, again, the goalposts are being moved, Scartsy. He's now claiming that, oh, well, San Francisco doesn't want to, to speak on Garoppolo. It'd be, come on, come on. Thoughts? I, I had a bit of an epiphany that uh, Greg doesn't believe he's media covering the team. He believes that he's one of Belichick's peers, an equal, <laughs> a rival, and that's just bonkers. I had no clue. It's some of his actions make sense if you look at it through that prism. But he does view he does view Belichick like equals, right? The old line. Well, he you know works as hard as Tom Brady and other uh, you know rip roaring nonsense. Uh, yeah, I would I, argue it's not rip roaring. I would say it's rip boring. Dan, uh, thoughts on the, the Garoppolo nonsense, uh, the goalposts moving out in Medway? Oh, my gosh. I wish people could see them. you shaking your head in disgust <laughs> on the Zoom right now. Well, you called it. it. He was right at the time. Like he said, well, it's plan A unless something happens. And then, <laughs> then punt, I guess. <laughs> uh, John, are we punching down on almost the coach? I, I have it's so odd to say that but like it just no feels it's not that way. It, it just feels that way you know it's like I don't I don't know what was said on Felcher and Maz today uh, but apparently he took like an extra helping of of 
meanness from at the from, lunch table. Those, yeah. From those guys, you know, I know he's got to go on like, that's the thing. Like I feel bad because like you said, the, the website thing clearly isn't working and Las Vegas review journal didn't work. And you know, he's got to go. Never on happened. And, it's no longer in his bio. Yeah. It never was. I don't think it, it you know, it just, it, it's like, and then he's got to go on. He's got to do this, like this awful thing on that show and get, and Dance. get treated. Yeah. And just get treated horribly by horrible people, you know? And it's like, they I call him help. the Abdow's big boy. And as I yeah. tweeted last week, he has a f- pillow with that imprinted on it. Have some pride, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is like, this is like the grown up Catholic, you know, Boston feeling bad, you know, except just, he grew I, up in Boca. I mean, nah, he, this is I'm, just I'm who he about, is. Yeah, Boca Bedard. I'm talking about us, you know, oh, okay. it's, 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 you know, I just, I, I don't know. I don't like, I don't really, it does feel like we're punching down sometimes. I don't know. I don't, I, not that he doesn't, you know, bring it on, I guess, you know, with some of the goofball things he says and the fact that he would view Belichick as like a rival of sorts and, and somehow like he, he can go toe to toe with Bill Belichick with tough questions at a press conference. Like he knows more and he second guesses him. I mean, it doesn't take me long to get into fifth gear and, and, you know, want to kind of call this stuff out, but then I just, I don't know. There's something about it where it's just the down on his luckness of it all. I mean, the secret life of Walter Bedard. Yeah. I just, I don't know. It's a rough one. There's a, there's a certain Catholic guilt that I've got, you know, it's in the DNA, Mike, from, from the old days and childhood. I just, yeah. do we, you know, anyways, but then Scarty will say something and I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, you're exactly right. That's oh, yeah, That's why. <laughs> Scartelli <laughs> yeah, always, always mixing things up with us. Uh, hey, if you, Go ahead. If you want to go dance for quarters on FNM, you know, expect this to uh, expect people to react uh, appropriately to that. I had to detox for two seasons ago. Ironically, the year they won the Super Bowl in 2018, I'd be sitting in my office out here in the West Coast and I'd be listening to, to on my lunch hour, ostensibly, he'd go on and, uh, and just spew just bullshit, not based in reality and film study. And, and, I, and I honestly believe that there's some sort of pathology there to his lying i just there's just a warped sense of reality that goes on with him that i had to stop doing the almost the coach recaps from my own sanity limited though it was the next point that's that's on our list is that something's been made crystal clear i knew it going into this but it's been made crystal clear crystal as uh was said in the movie A Few Good Men. Why am I blanking on Nicholson's character's name? Anyway, the utter uselessness of Ian Rappaport and Albert Breer. Can anyone confirm the useless uh, uselessness of them? Dan? I can confirm. Amazing. I mean, they have their Gasper-sized thesaurus out. Basically, re- just, I don't whether they're, in Bedard's case, excuse me, Bedard, get 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 Bedard off the brain here. In Breer's case, classmates, they yeah, went to the same school, so yeah, you know. yeah the, the Lincoln Sudbury for the loss on this point. Matthew Stafford, the Rams released a Photoshop of Mass- Matthew Stafford today, which Breer quote tweeted and said, "Looks like," and I'm again, I'm paraphrasing. Stafford, captain of the Rams already. Really, val- nobody adds less value to anything than Breer. Unless it's Rappaport, it just, they are Ryan Hannibal at a national level with, they have, agents have their, their 
their burner phone numbers. I always laugh when I see Schefter on a hit looking at a cell phone in each hand. You're not that important guy. You're, you're, you're reporting what an agent texts you. Uh, you know, in my case, what's that? In Bear's case, I, in Bear's case, I think it's just something where he wants to have a reminder that I'm still here. Everybody over here, guys. I, I, I have a comment on this same thing that somebody else just tweeted. I want you to all know that I, I, I saw that too. I have the same sources as that guy. Yeah, it's no. I'm, listen, Breer's a, a terrible writer. The word salad that he puts together, or, or attempts to put together, is kind of a, is kind of amazing. Hi, Alex Scartsy. Um, any comment on Breer and Rappaport? Oh, I like to always, you know, try and put a uh, Rappaport uh, bit into the uh, sports junk drawer yes. every week, which is basically just a completely unedited, uh, you know text message from a agent talking about their clients, you know, availability and uh, just, you know, he'd be a perfect fit with your team is what the <laughs> statement basically is. And it's, it's just so, it's so thuddingly obvious that, you know, he's, he gets this copy paste, tweet it out. You know, and control C time, time control for lunch. V. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it really is, is laughable. John. Yeah, I, you know, Scarcey's earlier comment about dancing for quarters. I mean, it, Rappaport's dancing for quarters in a different booth. You know, it's it's the cost of access. And, you know, I'm guessing the agents are calling the shots. And if you want to report, you know, you're wholly dependent on the agents feeding you information. And right. there was a funny one um, the, earlier this week, you know, Schefter reported something, you know, per source. And like in my Twitter feed, like immediately on top of that was Volan reporting the exact same thing per the agent, you know, per the player's agent. It was beautiful. And it's like, you know, Schefter's quote unquote source, you know, it's like, come on, dude, everybody knows that this is just agents either sending out group texts or they promised, you know, they'd give it to you four minutes before they sent out the group text, right? So you can be the, the quote unquote insider who's four minutes yep. ahead of, me knowing it, you know, a, a four, four minutes ahead of like everybody knowing it, right? It, it, so it's, it, I, I, look, I will say though, that's Rappaport. I mean, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like harmless, you know, somebody's got to, somebody's got to write the press release, right? So Rappaport's writing the press release. It's the that's ultimate fine. replacement level gig. Exactly. Breer bothers me a little bit differently though, because he's really got an ax to grind on Belichick. And he, was he you know, claims he was thrown out of the building. It, and and obviously, again. obviously, you know, he's he's reporting as such, right? Again, file under more more of these guys taking things personally. Also, was suspended when he was at NFL Network for uh, for undisclosed reasons, but that's something we can get into another time when I have the facts. Yeah, that's we should get back to that at some point because I will say his reporting, especially with the Patricia move, was particularly nasty. And all of his conjecture, I mean, he was kind of leading the national conjecture that nobody would play for the Patriots. So if anybody's been kind of wrong about that narrative, any one person is like leading the media league in wrongness on that narrative, it's Burt Breer, right? It's Burt Breer. And, and he's, he's just gross. I mean, he is, he is, he is a <laughs> gross dude. Like, I don't think there's anything really like salvageable there. You know, I just, his tweets, the juvenile nature of it all, you know, this Ohio state fanboy thing that he's playing, you know, I just, there's nothing about, like, I would never follow Greer. That's his not stuff playing. appears in my feed. I would never follow 
what like I have no interest in that guy. Well, I follow him so you don't have to. Uh, Dan, thoughts on this? Yeah, well, they've got a built-in pivot if they say they're not going to come to New England, uh, like either Patricia's going to keep them away and Brady's not there. As soon as people start coming to New England, well, they can quickly pivot to, well, obviously it's because they're overpaying them. Right. Leaving right. out the fact that uh, Shaq Barrett didn't take any uh, hometown deal to stay in Tampa. Thousand percent. And it was initially, again, it was initially reported as Shaq Barrett, you know, Tom Brady recruiting Shaq Barrett to keep him stay. No, he was playing on the franchise tag last year and they gave him more to stay and they spread it out. So again, um, narrative destroyers. So I, I did want to say that when John referred to Breer as quote gross, there are a legion of Ohio state undergrads from back in the nineties that would absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with you quickly. Marcus Mariota was in the news as we were recording this on Thursday, uh, that he's going to have to take a pay cut or he'll be either traded or released. John, he's your guy. Um, I think he's redundant with, with Newton. They're kind of similar level quarterbacks. He's a lot safer with the football. I labeled him as Jason Campbell 2.0, kind of a captain check down. Mariota, what do you think? Is is he a fit? Uh, You know, first of all, he's the advanced metrics to the degree to which you, you subscribe to them. uh, He's much better than a captain check down. Um, the, the, and the numbers kind of back that up. I will say, I, I like Mariota. I've always liked Mariota. Actually, the, some of the, the BS narrative about him not being the alpha in the huddle, I think that's a Bedardism or, you know, not, not being a, a leader in the huddle, not being a good fit because of that. You're saying I, that's I, not the sense inside the huddle? I, <laughs> I, I, I completely disagree with that. Um, I think he would be a good fit. I do think there's something to the redundancy. Uh, none of us, I don't think, are surprised that it's coming to a head with the Raiders and they're going to have to release him. Uh, he's not going to take that pay cut. He's going to hit the market. Um, you know, c- do I think the media could, uh, you know, Bill, Bill signed Cam too soon. You know, Mariota is a street free agent. You know, maybe uh, he shouldn't yeah. have, maybe he shouldn't have committed to Cam so soon. I do think, you know, and it goes back to the Bedard Garoppolo plan A stuff. Part of this is the timing around the draft. And, and you just have to be like somewhat logical about this. The, it's the, a waiting game. Yeah, you know, it is a waiting game, and the draft is gonna is a is the fulcrum for a lot of these moves. I mean, why would the Niners do anything with Garoppolo before they understand what they can do in the draft? You know, they're sitting there in a situation where they're just what a little bit ahead of the the Patriots. They're right? picking twelfth ahead the, of the Patriots. The, the Pats are at fifteen. The, the Niners are at twelve. You know, a lot of people think that the the quote unquote top four guys are going to be gone before twelve. Mac Jones may or may not be there at 12. Maybe the Niners want him. Maybe they don't. Maybe they want to trade up. Maybe they're looking at, you know, all sorts of opportunities to move up a few spots to get, you know, one of the top four guys. Why would they move? And then, of course, what are the Patriots going to do? Are they going to sit back and let the the market be dictated to them? Or are they going to go out and do the things they have to do to, to set the team up? And I think the, the very, very low risk with Newton you know, gives them an option. Now they can move from a position of strength and not desperation. Mariota, a small amount of leverage. He's going to get a deal probably not too different from Cam that's going to be performance oriented uh, with a much lower base. And, you know, if he's sitting there after the draft and the Patriots aren't able to get a guy like Mac Jones, then I think Mariota makes sense because you want competition for Newton in camp. Right. You know, you're not going to, you're not, but, but does it make sense to get Mariota now and then all of a sudden the Patriots 
have an opportunity to do something in the draft? No, it probably doesn't. Okay. Uh, Scartsy, you and I, probably as much as anybody, were the, just chagrined, shocked and chagrined by Newton's performance last year. Um, where, where do you feel Mariota falls with regards to Newton's potential performance? And he, he was a good signing for the Raiders last year and that Cam was a good signing for the Patriots and that it was a good gamble. But moving forward, how, how would you feel potentially about Mariota and Cam having a, a competition? I'm, I would be, uh, I wouldn't be uh, opposed to it. I'd be happy to see someone with uh, a little less ball security issues than we got with Cam during the during the year. But right now, I'm uh, right now. I just got to say that I'm the most, uh, I'm the most optimistic I've been since the uh, December game against uh, against the Chargers. You're positively sunny today, Scartsy. It's it's great, and I'm 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 going to you know say I'm I'm looking at a tweet right now from uh, from old friend Mark Sanchez saying that Patriots quarterback Jared Stidham has organized quote unquote Pats West, which kicks off this Sunday. A majority of the Patriots pass catchers are headed to Orange County, California, for several days of work. So it's entirely possible that uh, that Stidzy may have uh, gotten the wake up call. That's Instagram star Jarrett Stidham. Have, and I know you've noticed this, Scartsy, on his Instagram posts when he's with his quarterback guru, Jordan Palmer. For some reason, he's wearing two watches like he's Doc Brown and Back to the Future, you know, just with Rolexes or other low level watches. Have you noticed that, Scartsy? I'm surprised he's not wearing three watches. Well, don't, don't, don't dare him. Cam might wear three hats on his next appearance on the I Am an Athlete podcast. Dan, uh, I would argue that you're the the most measured among us, and that's uh, anyway. I'll, I'll low bar. Yeah, low but, bar. You know, I, I was going to try a, a Jerry Thornton analogy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty confident. Indeed. I'm very, very confident that Cam's not going to saunter into training camp and here and say, "I'm here to compete for my job." If Mariota is signed, thoughts on Mariota? Well, actually, let's start back with what John said. Uh, it would be something that would come after the draft. That they're, they're not going to thousand percent. Move. Yeah, um, and you're right. I, I, I went from watching that um, the presentation that he did with um, I'm already forgetting the the players that he was along with Fred Taylor and and Chad Johnson, right. Brandon Marshall. Came to really like the guy. You know, he 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 you he understood what Belichick's about. He understood what the Patriots are about. You really nice want to look root behind the curtain. Yeah. You, you want to root for him, you know, and there was credibility, all those players doing, doing that. So it was just the performance the performance was the, the problem. And I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt that, you know, I'm missing training camp and coming back from an injury and coming, uh, having COVID early, early on in the season, I mean, like we've said before, that doesn't explain him throwing uh, in the direction perpendicular to the way his legs are set. But, you know, there, there should there could be some mitigating circumstances to why he performs so poorly. But I just like you said, he's not going to be coming in saying I'm I'm going to I'm uh, looking forward to competing for my job. Oh, God. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> Sorry, the cerebral statue, on. the cerebral statue lives on in our memories. I the reference to make one last ham-handed comparison to Bledsoe, um, I kind of 
rolled my eyes a little bit. Remember the after Parcells left and after Carroll came in and they fired, uh, I think Steve said, I can't remember who the offensive coordinator was his first year, but Drew went through three coordinators in three years and he needs to settle in and have his guy. And it's at the time I was like, oh, okay, I guess. And I'm pretty much the same way with, with Newton and COVID. And I, I think there's not to get on the science side of this, but I think there's a lot that we don't know about the disease that caused this pandemic and maybe, and I'm not smart enough. I'm not smart enough. I wasn't smart enough back then to know if the three offensive coordinators in three years thing um, would affect Bledsoe. Again, throw the ball perpendicular to his body, the really, really poor mechanics um, and Newton's effect with COVID missing camp, that sort of thing. And it doesn't hurt to bring him in at three and a half million dollars to bring him into camp. So um, I've hammered that point into the ground does anyone have anything else on newton before we move on uh quickly on a couple of other subjects before we get to some listener emails well one thing with newton just like what you were saying earlier um they didn't nobody local had that story either no right not at all i mean it's it's, i I didn't see who who broke all the different signings but jim mcbride was a was i believe first with somebody else who i don't remember breaking the newton re-signing last week so kudos to McBride who's actually one of the good ones. All right. Uh, Van Noy, Kyle Van Noy's back and he made the, uh, the, the one that's desperate for attention. He put him in a body bag on Twitter on Thursday. Uh, Van Noy back pisses off all the right people. I'm, I'm really happy to see that. It's, it's fantastic. Scartsy, Van Noy in particular annoys the Bobos at 98.5. And for that reason alone, not not to to put aside the fact that he's been a really really good player, does it make you as happy as it does makes me? Oh, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to see. Just knowing that he's going to be, you know, knock on whatever, he'll be here, you know, all season. Just you know, making plays and making the uh, making the dummies look dumber. It's it it really is. An exceptionally, an exceptionally beautiful thing. Van Noy was yappy, and when he came back with Miami last year, it's kind of again, I kind of rolled my eyes at his comments. But if he's going to buy in, and he's back, and this is probably going to be the last large contract he gets, or at least it's it's structured again, as we discussed earlier. That contract is structured in a way where if they let him go, they're just on the hook for half of the signing bonus going into next year. All right, before we get to listener emails. Uh, a Twitter legend. Oh, go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. You had a point. You know, yeah, there's one thing with Van Noy. I was, I, I think he's like the oldest at, he's going to be turning 30, 30 this year. Right. I think of all the guys that they just signed in the past week, he represents the oldest. That's, that's different in the past too. All those guys are coming in at 26, 25, 27. Yeah. And he has the shortest contract. Uh, one of the shortest contracts in the moment. It's a two year deal. I believe the sounding bonus. Uh, I don't have the figures. I'm going to use Miguel as my spirit animal here. I don't have the figures at my finger, so I'm not going to spread misinformation. Um, again, before we get to listener emails, uh, the Twitter legend Matt from Framingham has been is in contact one of one of the members of the 15, and he wanted he wanted us to note he has some thoughts on the Celtics. I will get in maybe discuss the Celtics another time. But uh, this is from Matt, the legendary Matt in Framingham on the Celtics. The Celtics can go to Mars and stay there. I'm so pissed right now with the way things are going in my life. 
if I see the sellers come without five feet of me sick, I might need an army to hold me back. Welcome back, Matt. Our <laughs> prince is here. <laughs> Scarcy, I know you're a big Matt fan. That was our sweet angel. And, and we had a terrible mutual, loss we had that he's mutual, not on Twitter mutual, anymore. Yeah, absolutely. A mutual friend of ours has a, a has a killing on his belt, and that those kind of misgivings are never forgotten. Sweet Prince. I just, I have to read that again. If I see the sellers come without five feet of me, I might need an army to hold me back. Uh, all right. Uh, listener emails. Uh, we have four listener emails. Uh, we have four emails from three different listeners this week. Uh, the first one is from me. It's from Patrick for Iron Mike. And he asked me if I ever sleep, feel a slight build of guilt going after Volan. And the answer is no. Uh, he wouldn't either, just for the record. Uh, and this is uh, Scarty, old friend of ours from the old board, the, the BSMW board, the Bruce Allen's creation. Uh, this is Norwood Zip. Walter and Norwood uh, wants to ask us about log rolling in national and local media. And this is the point John made earlier that I disagreed with. Um, I'd ask, aren't they competitors, at least in theory? And I always call it a back-slapping cesspool. And I don't think they understand competition. Uh, Scarty, before we... John disagrees. He thinks Boston's a competitive market. I'd argue it's a log rolling slash back slapping cesspool. Log rolling is is Norwood Zip's phrase. Uh, do you want to use some Solomon's wisdom here and split the baby, or do you have a do you have a? Are you going to take a side? Have a take I, I, and don't suck, said Jim Rome. Oh boy, I don't think I'm getting racked on this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, we're really bringing in the. Uh, Really bringing in the baby boomer uh, demographic now with this sort of talk. Still but anyway, more the, the, than I, Shank. The, I, that's right. Yeah. Talking about uh, fear strikes out for crying out loud, but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. But anyways, the no, the no, that's they're all uh, it's they're all against everybody else is what it comes down to. That's how I view yeah. it. Dan, uh, do you have any opinion on that? He, I'm still lost in fear strikes out. I mean, because the millennials <laughs> love Jimmy Pearsall. <laughs> it's I, I I think it's a product of the of the laziness that's kind of it's kind of gathered. They all allow each other to be lazy and not work too hard. So and maybe that's maybe that's a larger point. It's again, it probably goes back a little bit to the accountability industrial insect uh, complex. He tried to say, uh, <laughs> two, yeah. God, get the marbles out of your mouth there, Irons. Uh, two emails from a veteran uh, in Titletown emailer. I guess we I guess we just touched on the first one, so we don't have to discuss this one. He was asking, what's the rationale for keeping Cam when he struggled throwing the ball so badly last year? So we just covered that. Uh, Vinny sent us a great question that we went off on um, for, for a good little bit, and I think it was a question that we all enjoyed about an alternate ending to the 1996 Patriots season. What happens if the Patriots wind up beating Green Bay in the Super Bowl and the, the alternate reality? So this one is based in reality. And it's a good question. And I think it's right up, uh, right down the alley for the three of us. And I'll start with uh, you, John. Vinny wants to know um, about the 85 Patriots, the original narrative breakers. Um, here's Vinny's email. Been watching old gold, old games lately. What was the discourse surrounding the team like in that time? What were your overall feelings on Steve Grogan and Tony Eason? And John, I'll let you get started. 
Oh man, I know you're starting with me because it's so much of that. We were kids and it was flavored by, you know, the, the, the vibe in the house, dad, friends, you know, uh, and of course the, the media coverage was so much different back then. Right. You know, we were all much more dependent on what was said in the paper, but right. just thinking about, thinking about it from my own child, you know, eyes uh, and the biases of dad um, loved Grogan uh, just absolutely will always love Grogan. In fact, it took, I, I'm not too embarrassed to say it took more than one Super Bowl for Tom Brady to surpass Tom, uh, Steve Grogan in my, in my eyes. I just, he, he was, he was everything kind of about, um, you know, that team, the kind of the hard scrabbleness, the, the stadium itself, how lousy the stadium was. I know you loved it. Um, but you know, the aluminum benches and the three slab park as we used to call it. And, um, you know, just Grogan just epitomized everything about kind of working class, uh, South shore, South of Boston, sort of environment that we were from he opened up a sporting goods store at the foxborough rotary after you retired i mean he was working class bootleg barnacle would appreciate that working class absolutely so there's something about grogan that just spoke to i think it's like us you know i mean i i wouldn't suspect the lincoln sudbury kids felt exactly (laughs) about you know grogan the way we felt about grogan down in brockton right he was absolutely a guy and then champagne tony Oh. Right. You know, when I'm hearing champagne, Tony for Tony Eason, I'm not thinking champagne, Illinois. I'm thinking bottles of champagne. Right. And and he was aloof. Um, and again, how he was portrayed. Now, now I'm going to say this in, in with respect to Eason, but how he was portrayed at the time by right. the, the small number of people that controlled the narrative. Ron you know, Borges much, being one of them. Yeah, exactly. And much, much more. I think back to Brockton Enterprise, Wynn Bates. <laughs> Fearless Farley at the Brockton Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Fearless Farley and Wynn Bates to go way back in time. Um, the, you know, the, the Eason was kind of everything Grogan wasn't. You know, he was, he was very, very pretty, um, you know, California background, uh, you know, kind of just, he, he just wasn't Grogan. You know, wasn't, didn't have the toughness of Grogan, turtled in the pocket. Uh, Grogan, you know, got his head taken off. And, um, you know, it was just, it, they were just very, very different. They were portrayed yep. as such. Yep. And, and, you know, just Grogan, I have such wonderful memories of watching Steve Grogan play. It was, it was a real, that was a great era of Patriots football. It wasn't easy. I mean, it was a kind of a sports writer's dream. The, the, the stark differences between Grogan and Easton and Grogan was, I mean, we were preteens then and he was a mythical figure uh, in our house. And it's like someone we have, we've carried respect for throughout, you know, I mean, we always refer to Grogan is, Again, as a larger-than-life figure, Mr. Scartelli, uh, the '85 Patriots. Uh, regarding Vinny's question, uh, your thoughts? Uh, what sort of uh, football fan can't love a quarterback being out there with a fullback neck roll on? Absolutely. <laughs> but the but the people forget um, uh, California Bill. People forget that uh, <laughs> forget that you know Eason had the higher upside than. Uh, than Grogan that was this this was going to be the guy who was going to you know get the Patriots you know over the hurdle he's going to you know do what uh do what couldn't be done up until this point and truth be told it was uh, a bit unfair that you know he had to be the uh sacrificial lamb to be under center during that uh Super Bowl mm-hmm. no he oh, yeah. was he was right. he was 
unprepared. And I, I don't know if some of that comes down to coaching or whatever, but things did not go how we wanted things to go after the, uh, you know, first series. Yeah. I, I, I don't even think when I think of the 85 season and, that, and I'll, I'll opine a little bit, I don't even think about the Super Bowl when I think about that 85 season, I think of that glorious night in Miami. Uh, I was at a Celtics game with, with my aunt, with our aunt on a, I think it was a Friday night before that game. And we, we left the old garden. We, we went into the grungy park street station. The game was a Sunday afternoon and the entire, the entire station was chanting squish the fish, squish the fish. I remember that vividly. Um, to your point, the point Scarzi just made, um, I just finished Jerry Thornton's book From Darkness to Dynasty, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I vouch, and that's something we can discuss at another time. The book, the book actually taught me a lot of things I didn't know, and I consider myself kind of an amateur historian of the Patriots, and I found the dynasty not that way, but um, Thornton's book couldn't source the story, but there's a, an urban legend that Easton started the game 0 for 7 and was turtling in the face of the Bears, the rush with the Bears 46 defense. And John Hanna supposedly went to Raymond Berry and said, I'm not going out there if Grogan's not under center. So the fact that John Hanna vouches for Steve Grogan kind of validates our vouch. Uh, John, Dan, memories of the 85 season, thoughts about how the team was covered back then and Grogan and Easton. I felt bad for Easton. I mean, trying to live up to that legend. I Mm -hmm. mean, of what, Grogan represented uh, Mark Dondero when, when Patrick Chung was uh, uh-huh. announcing his retirement Dondero was saying can anybody identify Patrick Chung's signature moment well for Tony Easton unfortunately that signature moment that just keeps relayed and relayed is that turtling under pressure and and that's not fair he, he, he played some great games up to that he that, was terrific in 86 game. Easton was terrific throughout the 86 season and you're right um, look at his statistics, and I've I've cited them on Twitter. His playoff statistics are light years better than Drew Bledsoe's in the '85 season, the '86 season. Didn't turn even despite his performance, Easton's performance in that Super Bowl, he didn't turn the ball over. He gets a bit of a bad rap, and you know yeah. maybe that's unfair to him. Dan juxtaposed against Grogan. I guess I just made your point yeah. again. Do you have any other memories of the '85 season? Just the running game. I love that two-headed running game with with, with Collins and and James. Uh, it was just it was just Weathers a blast. Weathers and to too. Yeah, they had two sets of backs in that team, and it's that's kind of the team that there's a couple of teams that I I think we all have the teams that we romanticize in our lives. For me, it was the '81 Celtics and the '85 Patriots. Yeah. Um, I, I have a hard time with the '86 Red Sox because of the the just the absolute kick in the groin. At the end of that season, that's even that's unfair because what Dave Henderson did in Anaheim, uh, and against the Angels, and what he did against the the Mets in the World Series, and should have been the World Series MVP. Um, you know, it's it, it's I have I'm able to kind of explain away the ending to the '85 season in a way for the Patriots that I can't do for the '86 Red Sox. So uh, oh, yeah. that's on me. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's not that's not just on you, Mike. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like. Anytime, every now and then, like some rando Bears fan will try to dunk on a Patriots fan on the 85 Super Bowl. And I'm like, did that game even happen? Like, dad, dad to this day has never seen the safety. 
in the <laughs> late in that game. You know, it's like he was so gone. You know? <laughs> Literally that. and figuratively. <laughs> I know. It's like like nobody, nobody really cares about the Super Bowl in 85. The Super Bowl was played in the Orange Bowl. You know, that's a, that 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 narrative was destroyed that day in the Orange Bowl. That was the Super Bowl. I have nothing but like these awesome remem- you know, memories and, and, and feelings to the 85 Patriots, the way the Red Sox lost in 86, you know, being so close and, and losing that, you know, not everybody knows how, you know, they lost in game six, they came back, had the lead in game seven, everybody knows this. And that was just an agonizing, brutal way um, to, to lose it. The Patriots, you know, this, it's just easy to be romantic about that season, much more so than, than 86. It is. Scartsy, uh, more points. Oh, yeah, just circling that. back to the uh, to the 85, uh, 85 Super Bowl. You've got to wonder if there's a scribe in Chicago who realizes that there's a great storyline saying that uh, the Bears have been cursed because they didn't give Peyton the ball to score a touchdown. <laughs> Instead, they gave it to the fridge. The curse of sweetness. <laughs> the sweetness yeah. curse. So, you know, you, I'll give that to him for free. Uh, so there you they, go. It's, they, one of theirs. Run with that. Run with that. But uh, yeah, the the Bears they've been they've idea. been doing swell since '85. Got it. Well, the, it the, the, the the two teams, what the '85 Bears and the '86 Mets have in common, the most overhyped one team one year dynasty in the history of their respective sports. No teams have gotten more ink and produced less results than those two alleged dynasties. Hey, hey, something else to thank Bill Belichick for. Bill Belichick destroy not only destroy of narratives, but also destroy of, of dynasties. Uh, just right. over and over to Ricky Prohl. Tonight, a dynasty was born. However, Ricky Prohl was right. Mike, go ahead. I, I got to go back to the question, though, because the, the, the context of the question is somebody who listens to this pod, despite the fact that this is all boomer Gen X humor. Right. Seen through the, you know, in, in you know, the memories of this era. Right. Almost dad so, humor. Very, well, I'm, I'll, I'll fully embrace dad humor here, <laughs> but I got no shame in my game on dad humor. But like, by the way, I, no I, one could see your son actually made his first appearance on the podcast. <laughs> I, I will say, I will say anybody who's like under the age of 35 that didn't grow up going to Schaefer Stadium and didn't get to watch, you know, Grogan and, you know, low key, one of the best things about Cam Newton's season was getting up there with Grogan on the rushing touchdowns record, you know, the team rushing, you know, that's, there's a, there probably is, you know, a couple generations of Patriots fans that aren't really aware of Grogan. And certainly if they're aware of Grogan, they're aware of him in that kind of neck roll, you know, era, like you've got to treat yourself to some of those videos of the 1976 Patriots, which dad to this day says is the greatest Patriots team he's ever watched. You know, he absolutely adored that 76 team and everybody who's a, our age knows kind of how they got screwed in the playoffs and, and whatever, but you know, 76, 78, those are great teams and Grogan watching old film of Grogan, the way he moved, man, he was, he was just a transcendent player. I and mean, we got him in the eighties. He was pretty beaten down. He was still a wonderful player, but those videos of him in the seventies, I can watch those. I can watch those. Like I can watch Bo Jackson highlights. You know, those are just evergreen, wonderful videos to watch. He was Josh Allen, the seventies version of Josh Allen in many ways. Uh, Scarty, anything else regarding the uh, that Patriots Red Sox ham handed comparison that I made, or the even the bear the Bears Mets? Oh, just uh, guess it's always good to uh, get rid of a uh, dynasty before it starts. Oh, amen, amen. I, I could I could literally go on f- for hours 
regarding the 85 season. I'm a few years older than John. And my first game at Foxborough, ironically, was when uh, Eason broke his leg, if I'm remembering correctly. And that was the Grogan naked bootleg game. He went yep. to the left corner of the end zone in the dying minutes of a game against the Jets. I went to the next home game against Miami where they picked off uh, Marino. They, the Patriots in the middle 80s secretly owned Marino. Not so secretly owned Marino, actually, to anyone, again, who was A, there, and B, paid attention. Yeah, the 85 team will always, always, always hold a special place in my heart. And I, I kind of bristled at Thornton, uh, Jerry Thornton's I guess it's a marketing angle. There wasn't, it wasn't all darkness. The 76 team was fantastic. The Fairbanks era teams kicked ass. And of course, mm -hmm. ownership, the Sullivan group always managed to step on their collective dicks and they were, they were robbing Peter to pay Paul as it goes. But um, the fact is, and I should, we owe a debt of gratitude to the Sullivans begrudgingly though it be the same way that we, uh, we I don't want to say we, that I should begrudgingly Oh, Bob Kraft, despite his incessant ability to not stop the rhetoric, just some naivete he shows there that I should be thankful for Kraft's ownership of the team. Uh, Dan, any other points before uh, we mercifully end this podcast? Actually, just what you were saying on uh, Billy Sullivan. Um, I, I had started reading the same book and you, you, you kind of buy into a lot of the narrative that's been passed down through the years. Yes, they did make some poor management decisions, but to get that team going, he, he was a visionary to start. I mean, he had a lot of great ideas and he, he put them. He was a hustler. He put them on the map before they, somebody else put them on the map. They, they literally had to be in Foxborough and that's, and he put them there. Yeah, I think this whole, is actually a podcast ride. at some point. I think this is actually a podcast we can do at yeah. some point as amateur historians of the team. Scarzi, anything else before we wrap up? I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the retirement of uh, noted Patriot killer, Drew Brees. Mm. <laughs> Quote, quotation fingers, Dr. Eva style, noted, noted Patriot killer, Drew Brees. Although I think the last game, it wasn't the last game John and I watched, but among the last games that John and I watched, watched in person together, was Brady to Kenbrell Tompkins at oh, yeah. Foxborough the same day that Dor David Ortiz hit the games, the grand slam in game two of, of the 13 ALCS against the Tigers. But Drew Grease, great, great player. Again, one title, one title. I mean, I'm not going to call the Saints a dynasty. Drew Brees was a terrific quarterback. He, he, that's obvious enough. Uh, Dan. You know, I was thinking with Brees, Look at the times that he played them in like 2005 and 2009. You know, every four, he, he had the, uh, he came across some of the worst Patriots teams. I mean, worst. <laughs> yeah, good timing. Term. Yeah, I mean, relatively speaking. But, but he's playing these things. He's like, I don't know. These guys, they're not all that. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. Um, anything else before I throw it over to John for last thoughts, Dan? Dan's out. All right, John, um, before we go, uh, wrap it up for us. Well, the Sullivan's, you know, the joke in the house was the, the Sullivan's the only people ever lose money on the Jacksons. So it's fact. Yeah, but, probably facts. But, uh, if the, uh, if the Thornton book doesn't talk about the victory tour, uh, it does at length. okay. All right. So I'm going to have to, I, I will have to pick that up because that, 
chapter alone is is worth the price of it. I want the facts on on how exactly the Sullivans lost money on the victory tour. But um, let's just say both of us would want to negotiate with Chuck Sullivan in any scenario <laughs> professionally. Fair enough. I can uh, another thanks, Dad. Uh, in another podcast, you know the 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 thanks, Dad element of the NFL, right? Uh, when it the, came the, when it came to negotiating, I had no clue that was Chuck Sullivan's motto. Uh, <laughs> Patrick Scartelli, you can find his weekly column at the15net.com, the uh, emptying of the sports drunk draw. He's on Twitter at Pat's Cartel. Dan is on Twitter at uh, Patriots Daily. John is at that John Irons. Um, I want to thank everybody who's listened, sending emails, comments, feedback, uh, subscribe, rate, review, all that nonsense. Uh, the email account is entitledtown at gmail.com. Uh, the Twitter account you know. And before we sign off, as always, turn off your radios. And we're going to stay positive all the way through. And if you think I'm going to succumb to negativity, you're wrong. you got the wrong guy leading this basketball team. I had no clue.